From our text today, we are going to encounter Jesus making an extraordinary declaration. It's going to be about his identity and his relationship with the Father. It's a declaration that has challenged minds and stirred hearts for centuries. In a world where the concept of oneness can be elusive, Jesus presents us with an unbreakable connection. His oneness with the Father. This divine unity holds the key to understanding his purpose. It helps us to understand his mission, the reason why he came. And it even helps us in understanding the significance of our own faith. So as we explore this passage together, we'll witness the timeless truths that are relevant today as they were when the Lord first spoke them. We'll explore the concept of oneness and what it means between us and God, our relationship with the Creator. We'll see the evidence of Jesus' divinity in the miraculous works he performed. And we'll discover how these profound truths invite us to a deeper and more intimate walk with God, our Savior. So, Open your hearts and your minds to the words of our Lord. He's going to be speaking to us as we journey through John chapter 10. So if you would turn with me there. And today we're going to consider mainly verses 31 through 42. But we're going to begin at verse 27. And in these verses, we're going to uncover We're going to uncover the beauty of the unbreakable connection between Jesus and the fathers. So let us be seeking. Let us come with our hands open that we might receive all that God would have us to know and have, that we might truly have that deep relationship with God. And so, let us seek to understand what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our faith, and our walk with Christ. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 
I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law that, I, I mean, I'm sorry, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the words that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, how we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us as we consider your word this afternoon, we pray that you would give clarity and understanding. We pray, Lord God, that you would speak to us where we are. In our walk with you, we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you, in our understanding of your word. We pray, Lord God, that even you would draw those who do not know you as Lord and Savior, might today be the day of salvation. Father, we pray that your word would go forth with power, convicting our hearts. And we pray that wherever there is change there is, that is needed, we pray that you would bring about change. We pray where we need to be renewed, we pray that you would renew us Renew in us the right spirit, O oh God. And Lord God, we pray that you would remind us that we might not be a forgetful people and help us to apply that good word. We pray, Lord, all these prayers in Jesus' name, amen. I've entitled today's sermon, Jesus' Identity Revealed and Explained. I have 
a couple of points, three points, to try to assist us. You can think of these as markers in the text. Um, they are not divine markers. Uh, they, they can be changed and, and moved. But it's to, to help us to understand what the text uh, is saying to us. And so point number one, we like to, to use the point, the Jews' accusation and Jesus' response. The Jews' accusation and Jesus' response. Point number two, the works of Christ as the evidence of God. The works of Christ as the evidence of God. Point number three, the call to believe. The call to believe. And I'll restate these as we um, travel with, throughout the text. I want to begin at verse 30. Verse 30, the Lord makes a declaration. He makes a statement there. Mainly the statement is about the unity of God between the Father and the Son. He states in verse 30, I and the Father are one, pointing to the unity of God. And what we're able to see in that statement is that what, what seemed to bleed out is this reality that God is unified in everything that is done within the Godhead. We know that within the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has uh, different roles within the Godhead. Three persons of the Trinity that are unified in the Godhead. They are interrelated to one another. They share the same attributes. They co-op in the same work. And so we, we see here the Lord is trying to paint a picture of this idea of the consistency and the characteristics of God that is expressive throughout the divine nature of God. So when Jesus said to the Jews that he and the Father are, are one, they knew exactly what he meant. They knew exactly what he had implied because people didn't speak like that in those days. Only those who were sent by God. The Jews knew that the Lord was making a claim that only belongs to deity. They knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be God. And that's why they wanted to heal him on sight. In their opinion, they believed he was blaspheming the name of God. And by definition, to blaspheme is to profane desecrate, to take in vain the name of God. 
And this dishonors the name of God, and it is forbidden. So with that working definition, the Jews claim that the Lord Jesus did the same. They claim that he blasphemed the name of God. But when we think about that, we have to ask the question, does it make sense? Does it align with their allegations about what it means to blaspheme the name of God? The real problem is The Lord Jesus is a threat to their traditions, their statuses, their power, their influence, and their resources. So they're not going out without a fight. Apparently, they would do anything to save the things that they have. And that means killing by stoning in order to shut him up. Even without a trial, they were willing and ready to execute the death penalty on the spot. We see that in verse 31. After he said, I am the father of one, the Jews responded. In verse 31, it states that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. He's been saying the whole time that they have been trying to kill him. Here it is, the evidence again. And so this takes us to to our first point, the Jews' accusation and Jesus' response. And so let's begin with the Jews' response to Jesus' statement, I am the father of one. After their first attempt to kill Jesus, he responded to them with a challenge. And we see that in verse 32. Now that they're trying to kill him because of the statement that he made, making himself to be God, they would say, Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. You see the unity of God he he tries to present to them? He's been doing this the whole time. He says, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews turned around and answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. It's as if they're saying, we, we, haven't, lose, we haven't lost that desire. We're, we're going to kill you. Right? So he says, But for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. This is the problem that they have. The Lord Jesus is making himself God. That's their claim. But And actually, he's claiming to be what he already is. He's claiming to be what his nature already is already in the unity of the Godhead before the Bible ever said, in the beginning, God. At one time, before the creative order, when there was no heaven, no angels, not a star in the universe, no earth, no light, it was just God. 
the three-in-one God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before anything ever existed in all creation, there was the eternal Godhead. There was no time and space. God was self-sufficient. God was self-satisfying, self-sustaining, everlasting, in need of no one and nothing at all. We see it. And then it happened in Genesis 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look again, and that that verse just points again to the unity of the Godhead. Look again with me at John 1. Brother Dan, you have already read the text for us, but I just want to point out some things. John 1, 1 states, In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God. See that? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The Lord always existed. We see it in Genesis 1. We see it in John 1.1, where the scriptures are clear. So when people come to us and say that Jesus is not God, what do we say to them? These are the kind of people who are trying to disturb our theology. So we have to beware of who we're listening to. For example, beware of Jehovah's Witnesses. If you have a conversation with them, use this text to explain to them the eternal nature of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. Now, the witnesses claim that Jesus is not God. He is also under the created order, they would say. They would say Jesus is created, and that's where they get this idea of the firstborn. And so they have a go-to text that they like to use. I I just had a conversation with one on, I believe, Friday or Saturday. Uh, Actually, it was a group of them. They were trying to leave some material in the barbershop. And so... I wanted to have a conversation with them. We had a conversation, and you know, we're in the Gospel of John, right? All in John, Jesus is saying, I'm God. Check my resume, check my work. But they wanted to take me to Colossians 1.15. And they're probably going to show you the same thing when they talk to you. So when you read it, read the verse in context. Don't just allow them to remain on one verse. In other words, 
read what's before the verse and read what's after the verse. That would help in understanding what the verse really means and what the writer really means. Because what it's really doing is proving the preeminence of Christ. And verse 19 states that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see that? If, if, you, if we just read in its context, then, then we don't have to defend the scripture, defend scripture if you would. And so we see that in Colossians 1.15, this is a text they like to use. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Right? And so the, the favorite part that they like to use is the firstborn of all creation. They even pose that to me. What, what do you think that means? The firstborn in all creation. They believe that this teaches that Jesus is created and is not God. All right? So when they try to hand you an awake magazine, right, or some kind of material, we have to understand what that means. Right? It's dangerous, if you would. So, in, if anyone ever would try to try to disprove that Jesus is God, and it will happen across the board with various um, faiths and religions that people believe in, take them to John 20. This is pretty clear. John 20. Let's turn there for a sec. John 20, and this is, I like to say, a go-to verse. If you're, if you're ever needing a verse that talks about um, the deity of Christ and you want to have a short conversation that gets straight to the point, this is one of them. So this is where a doubting disciple named Thomas called Jesus God literally. This is pinned there, and so let's, what this pen does is it lets the air out of the balloon. This is the undeniable truth. Let's listen to what it says. John 20, beginning at verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, he being Thomas. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands and the mark of nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand in his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood... <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> uh, he just showed up. <laughs> right, the doors are locked. <laughs> <laughs> and John said, he showed up right there in front of you, right? So Jesus came and stood among them. It's like they turned their head and he was there. What did he do with that? So here it is. <laughs> the Lord said, calm down. <laughs> calm down. That's another word, way of saying, peace be with you. <laughs> peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here and see my hand and put out your hand and place it in my side. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And what was Thomas' response? He answered him, my Lord and my God. Right? Clear evidence from the scripture that teaches about the deity of Christ. My Lord and my God. Thomas once was known as Doubting Thomas. But that day had ended and everything changed for him. I'm sure of that. Now, look again at verse 33 in our text because the Jews doubted also. They doubted also. Listen again to their statement. Verse 33, the Jews said, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. That leads us to point number two, the works of Christ as the evidence of God. And then in verse 34 through 36, it states, Jesus answered them, it is not, is it, is it, is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? Kind of like being sanctified. It's another word, to be sanctified. And sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. In, in John, we see that the religious leaders continues to confront the Lord. And in this case, they're accusing him of blasphemy because he's claiming to be the son of God. But the Lord Jesus defends himself in verse 34 by referring to what is written in the Old Testament passage while stating that whoever opposes him can find support in the scriptures, specifically Psalm 82, verse 6, which says, I have said, you are God's. The Lord is quoting from the Old Testament. He argues that if human judges are rulers, and rulers were called God's, small g, called God's in scriptures because they received God's word and authority to administer justice, then it is not blasphemous for him to call himself the son of God. This forms the basis of Christ's argument. More support from the scriptures that argues for the position of judges and rulers being called God, small g, is found in Psalm 58. Psalm 58, verse 1 and 2 says, Do you indeed declare what is right, you gods, small g? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you, you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on 
the earth. Jesus clarifies that those who were called gods in the Old Testament were individuals to whom the word of God came, appointing them to their roles as judges. This recognition of their divine authority is grounded in the scripture. And Jesus emphasizes that the scripture cannot be broken. Meaning that it cannot be questioned, it cannot be defeated because it is the written authoritative word of God. Christ then applies this argument to himself by contrasting the recognition given to human magistrates with the honor bestowed upon him by the Father. He contrasts. He explains that the Father sanctified him and sent him into the world with a universal authority as the Son of God. Therefore, if it was acceptable to refer to human judges, judges as God's little g, because of their divine appointment, it is certainly not blasphemous for him to claim to be the son of God, the one who is from the beginning before all things, given his unique status and mission. Then the Lord Jesus underscores the honor bestowed on him by the Father who sanctified or consecrated him and set him apart for the office of mediator between man and God. The scripture in Hebrew often reminds us that Christ is high. He's the great high priest, right? So it reminds us of the first place that God has. And so the Lord underscores the honor that is bestowed upon him by the Father. And this sanctification and setting apart is equivalent to, sell it, to sealing him with a holy purpose by the Father's design, he's set aside on mission. I've come that they might have life and have life more abundantly. All right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Scripture teaches us that unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is necessary to have mediation between man and God. He is the man, Christ Jesus, the, the God-man, has come so that we might have life and have life more abundantly. 
There's a unique relationship between the Father and the Son, and we see that even in John 3, 16. Wayne Grudem states it like this, and I quote, Even the fact that the Father gave his only Son and sent the Son into the world indicate that there was a Father-Son relationship before Christ came into the world. They already had relationship one with another. Then Oswald Chambers adds, Jesus Christ never asks anyone to define his position or to understand a creed, but who am I to you? Jesus Christ makes the whole of human destiny depend on a man's relationship to himself and God. That's the bottom line. It's the question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And then he turned the gun on them and said, who do you say the Son of Man is? And we remember Peter saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember the time where he also said, do you want to leave? you want to go? And they said, where would we go? You have the words of life. And so we see this idea of life, this, this idea of needing to be born again. And so the Lord continues. He continues in our text by addressing the dishonor and blasphemy directed at him by the Jews who accused him of blasphemy for claiming to be the Son of God despite the Father's sanctification. Look again at verse 36. The Lord Jesus states, Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated? In other words, the Father have put his stamp on it. You, you, you might know about Moses and Elijah and all of those fellas. But I'm different. I, I have been given a divine mission by the Father before the foundation of the world. My role is to save sinners. And so we see that Christ is in a sanctified position, a first place position, a divine mission. And since he was sent by the Father, he challenged them to reconsider their claims against him, for he is the Son of God. And in verse 37 and 38, the Lord says to the Jews, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. He challenges them. Check my works. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me. There's that unity again between the Father and the Son. And he says that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So in these two verses, the Lord Jesus is taking exception to their allegations 
and he confronts them and invites them to prove he's not who he's claiming to be. In other words, he's asking them to test their argument against the truth to prove their case. But they won't do that because many of the Jews saw his work. They saw his works. And if they took Jesus up on his offer, they knew they would lose the confidence of the people. And they're not willing to do that. So up to this point, the Lord's fame in that area grew tremendously across the region. They could not deny the evidence because it was too overwhelming. Let's consider for a moment some of what these Jews were up against if they, declared, if they decided to accept Jesus' challenge. First, he expressed his deity over creation. When he fed the 5,000, turn with me to John chapter 6. We're going to look at that again to see it. And in John chapter 6, beginning at verse 11, we see God in his divine nature acting out his ability to create out of nothing. It has, it has the feeling of when God had dirt in the beginning. And what did he do? He made man out of the dirt. And here it is, people are hungry. The text says Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their field, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Do you think the people will ever forget that? especially during a time when they had eaten until they were completely satisfied. Verse 11 says that they ate as much as they wanted. Have you ever eaten as much as you wanted? You know how that feels. You might have to loosen your belt <laughs> you might even have to unbuckle your pants, right? Because you're so satisfied. And this is the context with them. They were satisfied. They had their field. And they won't ever forget it. Because here it is, they had fish sandwiches in the desert. Right? And the fish and bread kept on coming. What would, what would the Pharisees and the Sadducees say about that? What about the wedding in Cana? When Jesus turned the water into wine, do you think the couple who were being married and their guests would ever forget that? Well, I mean, they might. Uh, they were drinking, so they might have gotten too happy 
right? I don't know, the text doesn't say, but I'm, I'm assuming that that's a possibility. But I can see how people could remember that, right? What did uh, the man say who had tasted the wine? He said, um, this is strange. Normally people give the best wine first, and then they give you the cheap stuff later. I said, this is strange. You've saved the best for last. Right? And people won't forget that. That's different. That's unique. And in all seriousness, all I'm trying to say is that it's a memory people at that time in history would have never forgotten. This was the first miracle Jesus performed during his ministry. And then the second miracle came by way of the father, whose son was ill. I'm sorry, by way of a father. I want to be clear. Whose son was ill. The Lord in John, in John 4 said to, the, to that father, go, your son will live. While the man traveled back home, his servants met him and said, his son was recovering. The man began to think. He began to ponder. He began to realize that at the time he believed in Jesus was also the same time his son was healed. People won't forget that. And just recently, we've heard also the healing of a blind man, something that have never been done before. This is what the Jews were up against. Jesus says, check my works. Verse 37, Jesus starts by telling the people that the miracles he performs are proof that what he said is true. He says, if I am not doing what my father does, in other words, if it's not a thing that requires deity, he's doing God-like things. He's saying, check his work. And so he continues, if I'm not doing what my father does, do not believe me. Look at the amazing things I'm doing, as if the Lord said. They show that I am who I say I am. If it aligns with God, then believe. If they don't, then don't believe. Check my works. He goes on, the Lord states, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. What happened? Did they say, you know what? Jesus, you're right. We're going to give it a try. All right? No. In verse 39, we see the Jews who were at first listening to him still wanted to kill him. Right? 
They, they wanted to arrest him because they still think he's being blasphemous by saying he's, the, he's one with God. Despite all the evidence he has provided, but they can't do it because it's not his time yet. Right? We're reminded that the Lord Jesus is on mission. And nobody is going to disturb God's plan. God is there. God came into this position of mediator between man and God so that he might save his people. And no one is going to disturb that. They couldn't kill him because it wasn't his time yet. He says, no one takes my life. I give it freely. In verse 39, it states, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. The Jews were unsuccessful because, again, it was not time for him to die. Point number three, the call to believe. What's going on here? The people believed in Jesus through the testimony of John the Baptist. Right? In the last couple of verses, it says this about Jesus and those who followed him. In verse 40, it states, He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. John the Baptist spoke the truth. And at this time, John is off the scene, but his testimony still lives on. What about our testimony? Will it live on? Will we live our lives in such a way where we will affect the people around us? Will we share the gospel of Jesus Christ unashamed of what others might say to us? What kind of testimony would we have before the world? What, what residue are we going to leave in living our life here on earth? Will we testify about the goodness of God or will we just keep silent and allow life to go on? We're challenged. We see the evidence here that John continues to speak. And here... Do you remember what he said about the Lord in John 1, 25 through 30? It says, they asked him, then why are you baptizing, John? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These 
things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing, the very place the Lord is. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This is a good explanation for explaining the concept of the idea of firstborn. It relates to that, to Christ as in rank and status, not as in birth. It can't mean born because we know that Christ was not born before John or Adam as it relates to his humanity, but as it relates to his deity, he always eternally existed. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses tries to take you to Colossians 1.15 to try and prove that Christ was created, just read right below it in its full context. Because in verse 18, we see what the text means when it says, firstborn of all creation. According to verse 18, what's really being said, again, is that Christ is first of all. He is the preeminent one. And lastly, in verse 42, it says, and many believe, this is the response of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the Lord. And many believe in him there. The people did their own investigation and they drew their own conclusion. True regeneration and faith demands that we ourselves come to our own conclusion that Jesus is Lord and Savior. We must believe that he died for our sins was buried and then resurrected on the third day, we must come to that conclusion for ourselves and believe and turn to God that we might obey him for the rest of our lives. Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. And then in John 4, I didn't read this the first time because I wanted you to see it here in this context, which I believe is very fitting. John 4.53, notice what happened after the man realized his son was healed around the same exact time he trusted Jesus to perform this miracle. What does the text say there in John 53? What happened to the man? 53 says, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son would live. And he himself believed and all his household. So at this point, the man was trying, was tying everything together. And after gathering the evidence, he believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Miracles require faith for it to be performed. And in Scripture, the Lord would even limit his miracles by restricting himself from performing them on those who did not believe. 
For instance, in John 2, 23 through 25, it states this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, he knew the heart of the people. Another example of Jesus limiting himself from doing miracles is found in Mark 8, verses 11 and 12. There, the text says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. The Lord Jesus does not tolerate unbelief. Faith is necessary. Without faith, nothing is possible with God. And so, as we conclude our reflection on this passage, let us remember. Let us remember that this passage not only reveals the divinity of Christ, but it provides for us insight for our Christian journeys that would help us from day to day. It reminds us of the way in which we can apply the scriptures. It reminds us of our belief about God. We will at times struggle with our understanding of what the scripture teaches us. We will have to deal and struggle with the scriptures, but that's a part of our study and growth in the Lord. It's essential for us to continue in having our footing firm so that we might continue to believe in the deity of Christ as the only way, the only way to eternal life. We must continue pointing to the evidence of his works. His evidence of works proves his divine nature in our lives. We must point to the things that God is doing in our lives. So let our love and kindness and service to others be the evidence that points to our belief in the Lord. And let us continue to emphasize the oneness with the Father. As Christians, we are called to cultivate a deep relationship with God. With God. We're to continue to remind one another of having an intimate relationship with one another through prayer, through his word, through obedience, that the unity of God might remain with us to empower us to live in such a way where we're glorifying God. So we've been invited. We've been invited. What will we do with the biblical text that is before us? Will we apply it? Will we also be a witness for Christ in all that we do? Let us pray.